Welcome to the next episode of the Can Marketing Save the Planet podcast. Today, Gemma and I are delighted to be joined by Rob Harrison-Plasto, co-founder of Time Agency and author of the upcoming book, How to Be Happy at the End of the World. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And so that title of the book, really, um, and and the work that you're doing really sets the scene for the discussion that we're going to have today. Because um, before we get into the discussion about eco-anxiety, because that's what we're going to talk about, how to be happy at the end of the world. um, and, and, And Gemma and I have already exposed to you today that we're both feeling a little bit gloomy about, which is unusual for us because we are radical um, optimists, as we have to be, filled with hope in this space. Let's learn a little bit more about you, Rob, as we sure. um, before we go into it. So tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your work, and some of the people perhaps you've been working with. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I, um, I'm currently the co-founder of Time Agency. Um, so we work in marketing in e-commerce. Um, and then prior to that, I have been uh, at the University of Exeter for quite a long time. Whilst I was there, I um, taught on uh, education for sustainability and also developed a program all about engineering and entrepreneurship. So it's kind of like see where the marketing came in and the sustainability and so on. Um, I did my master's at Exeter as well in sustainable development, studied um, a lot about um, climate change and human behavior and social science and things like that. Um, And as an outlet for all of that as well, I've been writing um, for a long time now. I've written for Dark Mountain Books, Resurgence, The Ecologist, and a bunch of other different publications and blogs, usually on the theme of of climate change, nature connection, uh, and things like that. And recently, over the last few years, my focus has gone more into yeah the the emotional aspects of of all of this uh, the situation, um, as well as um, better understanding yeah what what can we do about it. That's fascinating. And um, I guess diving straight headfirst into eco-anxiety because it's real, it's a thing. I mean, why wouldn't it be? It's about saving the human species, which is a fairly monumental task ahead of us. But you did uh, a really insightful podcast with uh, Tim Lenton. Can you tell us a bit about that and his take on uh, on things as a climate scientist and the acknowledgement that eco-anxiety is actually a real thing? Yeah, so... um... I was writing recently about the fact that eco-anxiety quite often just gets labelled as something that affects young people who have probably got things out of all proportion and are bless them. It's really weird when you hear like people talking about, oh, the poor teenagers with their eco-anxiety. It's like, they're just scared, right? Yeah. It's Everyone, their future. Yeah, well, yeah, and ours too. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm very close to 40 and like, I, f- I, I feel very similar to them. I don't think age has uh, an impact on it. I think it's more awareness. Um, and yeah, and how much you've sort of, you know, bought into the status quo, I guess, and business as usual. Obviously, it's a lot easier for younger people to be a bit more skeptical because they've got less skill in the game. But um, yeah, so I knew Tim when I was at the University of Exeter, stayed in touch. And then um, for my own podcast, reached out to him because um, one of the papers that he um, co-authored is called The Future of the Human Climate Niche. And as I was preparing for the interview, um, I read that and a bunch of other papers um, around it to make sure I was properly up to date on all the science. And in doing so, I scared the bejeebus out of myself, basically. Um, I went properly down the rabbit hole and I looked at all the figures. Um, I spoke to some other academics as well. And I had that that weird kind of moment of like, 
is this for real? Like, yeah. is this genuinely for real? Like, am I, am I being hoodwinked? Am I, what's going on? Because it just seems like such a, um, uh, a separation between the science and then the lived reality of our lives yeah. and what you see on the news and what yeah. you hear politicians say. And then when you're just talking to just everyday people in the street and then you read these papers and you think, oh my God, like yeah. how, how are we ignoring this? How, how is this not front page news? How are we all not just, um, you know, in absolute um, sort of war preparation mode, like literally reshaping our entire economy to f- to face this down and work it work through it. Yeah. Instead, we just seem to be hitting the gas pedal, and that dissonance kind of creates, um, yeah, this real feeling of unease and and a lack of control. Yeah. And if you feel like you don't have control, you soon feel anxious and afraid because that's what those emotions are linked to. Um, so yeah, Tim was incredibly insightful and he was willing to go there because I I was really keen in that interview to not just have a normal conversation about, oh, so tell me about your research and your data. Yeah. And yada, yada. I, I posed the question to him like, how did it feel? when you first crunch the numbers on that paper and you realize what it meant in terms of the future scenarios and how many people that's going to affect and the fact that there's so many um, areas of the world that are going to become uninhabitable and it's going to affect food production and it's going to affect people having to flee. What was that like? And he was willing to have that conversation. And then he he was willing to go there and explain how how he manages that dissonance and how, um, yeah, he manages to, to just keep doing what he does. A lot of his work now goes into looking at positive tipping points as well as the climate tipping points, which I think he finds is incredibly important. But one of the things that really struck me and has led me down my own sort of journey now was the fact that he said one of the things that helps get him through it is by identifying with the life force. Now, so this is the Earth system science scientist, right? So he's looking at the planet as this, this complex, um, uh, interconnected group of systems. And he talks a lot about Gaia theory. He was a student of James Lovelock. And his whole perspective of seeing the world as one huge interconnected self-regulating system that we're all a part of allows him to, to stop identifying with just this narrow ego of, of, you know, the individual and start to see how he is completely interconnected with everything else on the planet. And it's all one thing. Yeah. And as I started to embrace that more and more, it's also brought me a lot of solace as well. Um, and I actually think that that <clears throat> I actually think that that perspective is not just useful in terms of um, seeing the bigger picture and, and recontextualizing, resituating this dilemma. I think it's also indicative of the paradigm shift that we're living through, which is why we're in this mess in the first place. Because that whole Lovelock idea of Gaia that was in the seventies, right? It's not. It was dismissed for so long. Yeah. even changed the name of it to Earth System Science so they can get more research funding for it. And it's now at the cutting edge of climate research. Like this is how we understand the world now through integrated systems thinking. Um, and for me, it's, yeah, it opens this door to say, ah, okay, everything is completely interconnected. We're not separate from nature. We are nature. Um, it's all interdependent 
co-evolving and self-creating. Life creates conditions conducive to life. And then there we are as this part of that, another species in an ecosystem that's behaving in such ways that we're not creating conditions conducive to life because we don't see ourselves as a part of nature. We somehow still see ourselves as made and put here Mm. and that we can then use resources as much as we want. We can use as much energy as we want. Um, And if you look at other species that use similar tactics, um, it leads to massive population drops eventually. So um, in in ecology, there's this idea of succession and different types of species that come into different ecosystems. And some of them, like the, the first ones into a new ecosystem, will basically just ravage it for energy and breed. So imagine mice in a um, a grain store or, or weeds on some you know recently ploughed land. They come in, they extract as much energy as possible, and they reproduce as fast as possible. And they're pioneer species. They they create the um, the conditions conducive to another layer of species coming in that's more long lasting. And I think the challenge at the moment is how can we go from being a type one species to a type two species? How can we start thinking longer term and understand that we are completely enmeshed, entangled and embedded in in natural systems that we're not separate, made and put here, but we are actually grown out of this earth just like everything else. And that worldview is really, really comforting um, and also jarring because it's so different from how we've been brought up. Um, Like for the last, whoever's been born basically since, um, yeah, or grown up since 1945 has been born into a world of fossil fuels and economic growth as the absolute, just that's the norm. Whereas it's a complete and total anomaly. Mm-hmm. It's a one-off. It's just a. It just stands out so distinctly from the all human history and all natural history that's that's preceded that. Um, so what we think is absolutely normal is anything but. Um, and as we start to understand what's really going on in terms of the fact that we are part of nature, um, it's a wake-up call. The reason that we've got the problems that we've got is because we haven't questioned the very things that we take for granted, the the worldviews, the ideology, uh, the way that we run things, we just accept it. We pass it on from one generation to another. Mm. And in that passing on, we're also passing on all these previous historical traumas of prior generations, like the, the impact of the Second World War, notions of like hostility and scarcity. They all get passed on from one generation to another, giving us the conditions that we've currently got because they go unquestioned. But once we can start to question them and become critical of them, like for me, this whole thing is a wake-up call. This yeah. is an invitation now to start thinking, how did we get here? What's faulty in our thinking? What assumptions don't serve us? Mm-hmm. Are we really dealing with all the information here? And as Tim's work has shown, Climate change has actually led him and others to have a better understanding of these systems than ever before. Imagine a civilization where you knew how those systems worked. We're bumping into them right now, kind of like in the dark, stubbing our toes. But now that we know that they're there and that we can impact them at scale, what if we could impact them in a positive way? What if we could work with them rather than against them? Before we go into kind of like 
sort of, I, we call them solutions, but things people can be doing to kind of break down and, and get a better understanding of, of, I guess, managing eco-anxiety or overwhelm or prevent, you know, trying to stop themselves going into that world. You talked briefly back then around how, um, you know, we are aware that there are challenges we're facing. I think, I think there's a big gap in the reality of the challenges we're facing. So it's not until Michelle and I completely immersed ourselves in this world and where we've been writing um, masterclasses and, and, and pulling out things for, for research and talks where we actually map at the different points in which climate change and the, the temperatures go up, the impact that has on the world. So where sea levels rise, the, the, the species that are wiped out, as we all move, as people in, in certain parts of the world have to move across and higher up to higher ground as, as, as land goes away. I think before we go into the solutions bit, can we just touch really, really briefly on the realities of this? Because as you say, you, it's that moment where I walk down the street going, how is nobody like changing everything they do tomorrow? How are we not literally in a world where everyone's gone, stop? We don't care mm. about what the media say. We don't care about the politicians. We don't care about any of this. There is an enormous that don't look up moment that is yeah. happening. So I think there's an awareness, the reality, I don't think people know the details behind, you say climate change, they go, yeah, they don't understand the, what's going to happen. So from your perspective, what is kind of just two or three top points of this is the catastrophic changes that will come if we don't do something? Um, the, the thing that's, that's been on my mind for a long, long time is, is food production. So as as temperatures change, as conditions become, you know, more extreme and be that from flood or or from from drought um, and just increased heat, food production crashes. And then there's also an interesting thing going on in what's called the third pole. Um, so this is around the Himalayas. Um, and as the the glaciers there, they basically provide all the irrigation in the basins around it for food production in China and a lot of Asia. That's where a huge amount of grain is produced. Now, as the temperature increases and those glaciers melt, initially that sees like a surge of water coming through. But over time, that will dwindle and dry up. And as that does, food production in that area will, will cease um, or become you know, much, much harder to grow. That then means you've got a billion Chinese people competing on global markets for grain production um, with people in America, for example, and then the price of food is going to go up massively. Um, and then people won't be able to afford to eat. Then you'll also see things in um, around the, you know, the equator. Um, food production there will come harder and harder. Um, and that's what will really bite. That's If you look back at all the other attempts at civilization. I think it's really important to be mindful that this is one of many. There have yeah. been many before. Um, they they usually collapse because um, they've gnawed away at some sort of social or ecological foundation that underpins them. And quite often that is either food or water or, you know, a mixture of something and, and disease. So mass migration, um, famine um, and drought, um, on a scale that is, is incredibly hard to believe. We're talking like hundreds of millions of people having to flee. Um, and we're talking about potential for what are called wet bulb heat dome effects 
um, which we've already seen a couple of. Um, there was one in Canada. Um, and the biggest concern, I think, is India. Um, and wet bulb heat events are where the humidity and the temperature gets so high that human bodies can't cool themselves any longer. Um, and it leads to heat stroke and, and also to death. So, yeah, it's epically dangerous yeah. and serious and something that we should be yeah. trying to avoid at all costs. Yes. So so we, we said at the outcome, you know, that Gemma and I were feeling a little bit gloomy today. And, uh, and, and for me, that is that is powered by the fact that politicians in this country didn't go to the, the recent climate uh, discussion that, you know, and people were saying it's interesting, isn't it? Because when it's positioned as this is about climate change, you know, clearly people are starting to roll their eyeballs around and not kind of think about what the real implications are. And, and some somebody I was reading about saying, you know, yeah, I wonder whether or not it was if it had been positioned around emergency food security discussion or emergency energy security discussion, mm -hmm. then maybe there would have been more of a kind of impetus and, and, a, and a, a more you know, bums on seats in the in the room than than there were because, you know, maybe it's the communicate coming back to the marketing communication challenge. And as Gemma saying, why aren't people getting this? It's potentially because we're not talking about it in the way that we need to mm -hmm. talk about it. Absolutely, like um, for me, marketing is a lot about storytelling um, and communication and. If, if there's one thing that could be learned over the last 20, 30 years is that giving people information is not enough. Mm. Um, you have to be able to connect with people on an emotional level. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and we need to tell different stories. We are storytelling creatures. And right now, our stories do not serve us. Our stories seek to perpetuate this, um, this understanding of us being separate, um, that everything is incredibly scarce because... Capitalism requires the creation of scarcity to function. Um, and we've got ourselves into this bind, essentially, where I like to think of it as, you know, that trick where people have like a, a, a restaurant table and it's got a tablecloth on it and you've got everything. You've got to pull the tablecloth out. Now, imagine if the challenge was not just to pull the tablecloth out, it was to also put another tablecloth in whilst yeah. you've still got all the cutlery and everything on the table. That's what is potentially what's being asked. It depends how you look at this. So there's a guy, a friend of mine called Rupert Reed, lovely guy. Um, he's an academic and um, a philosopher. And he, he's put out a lot of work that basically says, we've got three different outcomes here because one way or another, this civilization is finished. So either it collapses and you've got like mass death, all that stuff that we just talked about, um, or the second one is that as we start to notice that that's the way things are heading, um, we come up with a way of changing things. And as this one fades and, and augments and evolves, we push it into a completely different area. However, that will happen over time and things will fall apart. It'll get a bit bumpy. And then the third one is that that ability to actually pull that tablecloth all the way yeah. through and another one and have like this massive transformation. Wow. So in either case, we've got transformation or collapse. So to what extent are we able to keep all that cutlery and all those glasses on the table? 
And I guess, um, well, before I ask you the big, the big question or a big question, which is what, what can we do about this? I mean, the worst case scenario in my mind is that we end up in a world where it's just like the, the privileged West. I mean, what, what would that be like where you've just got China, the US and the other sort of rich countries that are still just keep going until they're imploding. So the rest of the world starts to sink or there's, you know, people there and civilization there goes and we end up with just, oh, I don't even want to say what's in my head, but we just end up in, with a really toxic, like civilization that's left and then they all turn on each other. I mean, goodness me. Yeah, it, it's quite the week this week. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so what what can we what can we start doing in terms of not just the communication, but as you say, giving information is is not enough. We have to we have to give the information. We have to drive the actions. We have to report back on the progress to keep that hope alive. So, what mm-hmm. does it mean for individuals that are you know those that are concerned about the future that feel like they're just not being heard? Um, and us as as marketers, as communicators, what is it we need to be doing um, to to really start? to drive more action because action is happening. You know, there are a lot of people and organizations and things that are out there doing good, but it's not fast enough, is it? The pace is what we're missing on a dramatic scale and that long-term view. Mm -hmm. Okay, so everything I'm about to say is completely biased through my own experience. And this is just what I found to be useful. If if you resonate with any of this, great. If not, that's fine, just leave it. I am ascribing to a theory of change more and more now that says that you can't have social transformation without personal transformation and that the single greatest point of leverage you have in the entire universe is on yourself, not on anybody else. And you can't force other people to do anything. All you can do is create conditions conducive to other people perhaps doing something or not. But the, the biggest point of control that you have um, or impact is yourself. And I would also say that... This entire reality is co-constructed together. Everything is socially constructed and it's based upon our own individual understandings, the understandings that we pick up from others. So bearing that in mind, it it becomes really important to, to go inward and to reflect and to become critically conscious of how you're making sense of the world and being able to, to see what's really going on and ask yourself, are these stories serving me? Have I got this right? Do I feel good about this or bad about this? To, to get back in touch with your emotions and with your mind and recognize that we are currently living in a paradigm and that this current paradigm is flawed. And if we look inward and we find the beliefs that support it, the habits of thought that perpetuate it mm-hmm. and the identities that kind of cement it, And we start to change those in ourselves because we start to say, do you know what? I'm not actually just some, you know, number on a sheet. I'm not just a job. I'm not just someone who's got a mortgage or I don't really give a crap about keeping up with the Joneses in this, this, this whole situation. Like, Mm -hmm. and if you actually start to challenge, like, yeah, who, who are you really? And, and why are you here? And what is all of this? Like, I think one of the reasons that we're in this problem, this situation is because, We've, we've lost touch with the awe and the reverence for the world that indigenous cultures just, you know, talk about and perpetuate. And they've been around for, you know, tens of thousands of years. Our, our whole model, our whole way of seeing ourselves and the world is flawed. 
And if we can go inward and start to challenge that and start to question how we make sense of the world, because ultimately we choose our reality. Like we can't, we can't choose what happens to us, but we can choose how we respond. And it is a choice. It's hard because there's so much emotion involved in it. And sometimes the things that happen to us are so large and overwhelming that that emotion is so big. Mm. But if we process that, that emotion, if we work through it, if we get good at that and we start to do that together in community and as a culture and we come together, that's where the power is. Because like I said earlier, it's all socially constructed. So you have a huge impact on other people. You showing up being brave, being strong, having worked through your grief, having worked through all this heaviness and still come out of it the other side in a position where you're like, do you know what? We're not going to solve all this. It's not all going to work out happy ever after, but I've got a really important role to play in this in terms of helping myself, my family, my community prepare for what's coming and to change the world as best we can. And ultimately, the thing that really gets me going is this idea that because it's all socially constructed, because it's all based on belief, with every single person that stops believing in the status quo, in the yeah. business as usual narrative, it becomes that little bit easier for the next person to stop believing and the next and the next and the next. Revolutions happen in two phases. The first phase is when people realize that something's not right. The second phase is when everyone realizes that everyone else realizes that something's not right. And once you hit those social tipping points and people stop buying into it, yeah. that's when revolutionary and radical change happens. Yeah. And it does feel, doesn't it? I mean, I, I love the, or, you know, everything you, you, you're saying makes total sense, Robin, and you say it so eloquently. And, and, and that piece around community, I mean, one of the things Gemma and I, you know, have kind of stumbled upon is this wonderful community of like-minded individuals that that really empower us day in day out to kind of stay hopeful and stay um on message and focused as to what it is that we we really want to and use our skills and power and influence and talents and uh, networks and communication, you know, whatever it is that we have, it's kind of like, I'm just going to throw everything because this is the right thing to be doing. It feels right. It seems right. And you're absolutely right because that I'm amazed at the amount of people that come back to and say, this is great that you're championing this because this is giving us this opportunity to champion it. And, and Gemma and I are kind of like, what, you know, we're just doing what we think is the right thing to do, but it does inspire others, doesn't it? And that is the important critical piece there, that these communities become self-fulfilling. They become self-created almost because you start to connect about things that really matter to you and that propagates and it propagates and it propagates. And and that is, you know, we've seen that ourselves with our very eyes in a, a very short space of time and it gathers momentum. So, you know, I, I, I've always said we need a revolution, but I do feel like we're in some kind of revolution. We are the revolution in, in one respect, because it's through our own shifts that we're encouraging those shifts and mm -hmm. and, and breaking down um, these, these kind of systems that do not serve us, you know, and getting back that point about being very disconnected, not just from from the world and nature, but from ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, we've not really had that opportunity to, to kind of think about things. And I think COVID actually gave people some time 
to reconnect with themselves. And wasn't that interesting how we all headed out for nature at that time and that nature is so healing at that mm-hmm. time. And that, and so many people said, oh, I've connected with nature. I've con-. It was almost like we needed to be replugged in somehow, wasn't it? Well, I think this challenge that we're facing is, 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 this, is similar because in our own personal lives, I'm speaking for myself again, but I think, you know, a lot of others that I've spoken with, when you go through something really challenging and you suffer, there's two ways of going. You can either just be completely overwhelmed and squashed by it, or you can become stronger than you've ever become before and you've learned something from it. There's a lesson in it. And that's what's going on right now. This is a lesson. We are starting to realize that our way of being in the world doesn't really work because it's based on false assumptions. So we need to change those assumptions. Um, and it, it hurts because, you know, all of a sudden what you thought was brilliant and like, you know, 60, 100 years of fossil fuel based economic growth economies, like, wow, it's been amazing. Right. But at the same time, it's completely flawed and it won't serve us long term when that's a harsh reality. Um, and it means that we've got to learn. It means that we've got to come up with new ways of doing things. It means that what worked before won't, won't work in the future. Yeah. And ultimately what that then means is that unless we change, we're going to suffer. And the question is, how long do we want to suffer for and how deeply do we want to suffer until we learn the lesson? It's just yeah. like in your own individual life. Mm. At what point do you go, yeah, okay, I need to change. <laughs> this isn't going to work. This is just going to take me down the wrong road. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, you have to hit rock bottom in order yeah. to have something to bounce up off. Mm. I just hope to God that that rock bottom um, comes sooner rather than later and it's not as, you know, not the projections that we were talking about earlier, but something that happens. Well, that's already, I've already seen enough for me to be like, yeah, this is rock bottom. I'm not having that anymore. I'm not playing a part in this anymore. I can see yeah. where this is going. But from that lens, then, then all of a sudden, this whole historical period becomes um, a learning event. It becomes the evolution of consciousness. It's at, a, at a species level. Now, all of a sudden, we start to realize that we're part of this interconnected integrated self-regulating system that is the planet and that's like whoa okay that's huge um but what would that then mean how would we live our lives based on those assumptions mm. when we start to see that the economy is not a subsystem of the environment sorry that the that the environment is not a subsystem of the economy to be used and abused but the economy is actually a part around. of an yeah. ecosystem yeah. what does an economy look like when it works within a functioning ecosystem um, what do businesses look like when they work within a functioning ecosystem? It changes the whole way we look at, at how we do absolutely everything. So it's, a, it's, awakening, it's an awakening. And the thing is, when, um, when we don't always want to wake up, and when you do, um, you know, when your consciousness does um, evolve and grow, it hurts. You're expanding consciousness. It, it's being stretched and it doesn't go back to the shape that it was before. You're having to move into new, unfamiliar, uncertain, unknown areas. And that's scary. But once you've done it and you've got over that fear, that then becomes the new normal. And that's what we're going through. I like to think that anyway, because yeah. it explains to me why it hurts, but also how it's going to help us in the future. I think it's exciting. I mean, I think if you're not already there, it's scary where you want to stay. If you want to stay where we are now, that's scary. If you want to change it and move to this different way, that for me is like where the excitement and the opportunity and everything we're trying to tell our story, all of us, Mm. is that way is so much better. And it's interesting, you talk about the pandemic and how when we were told to stay indoors, 
the society naturally rebelled, didn't they? And they were like, we want to get back out with nature. And then now we've kind of gone back the other way. We're back on our phones with all the apps that essentially you never have to leave your sofa, which is a really sad state of affairs, isn't it? So I think it's it's like you said, stop believing in the business usual and start asking yourself, are these stories serving me? Mm-hmm. And then don't be afraid to break out and find people in your communities, whether that's online or offline, who are going to work with you to take that step to try and mitigate. Because we're, we're not going to reverse climate change and we are not going to stop climate change, are we? It's now about mitigating and slowing down the pace. And how do we take it from here? Because we're not, we're not getting back. The world will still keep warming. And we have to now mitigate the, what, we've, what we've done eventually. Yeah, mitigate and adapt. Yeah, There's, adapt. I, I like this idea of, of joyful adaptation. So what does that look like? What does joyful adaptation look like? How can we make this something that you have this levity and happiness in your heart about? Because for me, the, the, the fear is in the clinging. It's in this wanting to control, it's yeah. wanting to stay where we are and noticing that it's crumbling and feeling overwhelmed by it. It's an attachment-based fear. So how can we let go? How can we let go of that fear? We need to feel comfortable enough that we'll be held, that we'll be caught when we let go, or that there's no drop at all. And we do that by having courage. And we, we develop courage when we encourage each other. It's a a social thing. It's a mutual thing. We need to give each other reasons to believe that we're going to be okay and that we're in it together and that we we are aware. You're not alone um, in in seeing what you're seeing and you're not going crazy. Um, And that if we want to create a regenerative world, then that starts with, you know, each one of us internally and with the people around us trying to create conditions conducive to life. And that's why for me, we've got this, this polarization between fear and love. And I honestly think that the hippies had it right. Um, and the Beatles did as well, because when you let go of fear, you, you find a position of love and you actually want to move to this different type of future, not because you're being propelled out of it through fear, but because you've been drawn to it by love because you're like, I want a better world for my children. I want a better world for future generations. I want to be part of helping my great grandkids to have a better chance. I want to help people on the other side of the planet have a better life. And that all comes out from love, not from fear. No, and I suppose where we get stuck is with the frustration sometimes as well. Like we mentioned, you know, or the politicians didn't go to there or the, the story that's coming out of the press and, the, you know, that, that's all kind of stories that are being told to us that, as you say, we've been conditioned for so long, haven't we, that this is, this is normal, this is part of what we have to deal with. But actually, we can just not buy into that you know it's a choice like you say it's a choice no I'm not going to look for that I'm going to get excited about what we can do about this and I'm not going to let I'm going to be aware of the stats and the facts and the realities because I think we don't want to kind of have ignorance is bliss and not be aware and informed about the reality but but being informed is almost that momentum then isn't it Mm -hmm. about okay how can I now use what I know to, it's even more proof, isn't it, if anything, that we can't 
do what we've been doing because that's got us into this mess and look at the mess that we're in. There has to be a better way and I'm going to forge my way into whatever that better way looks like and I'm going to have a think about what that looks like. I'm going to understand what I can do for myself and I'm going to make positive steps in in how I do that and I'm going to find like-minded people that Mm -hmm. can encourage me to continue to be um, courageous in, in how I don't listen to all of that doom and gloom over here and what I'm being told and I actually figure things out for myself. So that that is a, you know, that's very empowering, isn't it? And it's very exciting. Yeah, have the courage to stare down the truth as awful as it is. Yeah. But then have the determination and another type of courage to see the good and make it grow. Yeah. See that gift, like you say, it's a it, it is it see it as a gift. I'm feeling better already, Gemma. I don't know about you. I, I am, and I, I'm actually, you know, I, I thank you for um, making bringing a little bit of my sanity back this week, but also for for showing, I guess, or, or explaining so articulately how yeah. be doing what we're doing makes you feel good. I feel I feel good a lot of the time, and actually, I'm a lot more content having stared at the truth now and gone, yeah, I'm not just going to moan about that over there, which is not serving me I'm actually going to do something about it so I think that's absolutely brilliant so thank you so much so Rob at the end of every podcast we like to ask our guests the same quick fire questions to wrap up the show so question number one to you is quite simply can marketing save the planet yes storytelling everything we've just spoken about um and when we talk about community then and, and social construction and, you know, modeling behaviors and all that sort of stuff, you know, go back to Persuasion by Cialdini and look at the importance of social proof, right? And look at influencer marketing, right? What are they all based on? They're based on the understanding that human psychology is socially constructed. And, and that's exactly what we're talking about. So marketers and, um, yeah, people working in advertising, marketing and so on, we have all these tricks and tools right that we use to like sell products but they're based on deep psychological you know roots how brains work how people work how emotions work remember that right use that um tell different stories create different communities um make it easy for people to 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 step into that new world because they see that other people are already there and are already willing to do that so can marketers help absolutely Brilliant. And what do you hope business looks like in 10 years time, Rob? I would love to see businesses that understand that they're parts of ecosystems and they're parts of communities and that they work in such a way that they create conditions conducive to both those things, to to communities and to ecosystems, because they're all one and the same thing at the end of the day. Um, And that they, they take that responsibility on and they ask themselves, would the world be better or worse off if I stopped trading tomorrow? And if the if you can create a business that um, would would see the world being worse off if you weren't around, then you're you're doing a good job. And that's what um, I like to think of as a good definition of what is a regenerative business. Yeah, it's, it's something that can do that. So more of those, please. Yes, and um, I'm going to slightly adjust this one at the end but if you were to give one piece of advice to others around moving forward from a state of eco-anxiety or eco-overwhelm what would it be? Mm. 
look after yourself. Um, be kind to yourself. Take the time to reflect. Be critical. Be open. Be curious. Get outside. Walk in nature. Look at a tree or a lake or a field or any of it and know it as yourself. Recognize that it's just all just one big thing. Um, if you can go out and look at the stars one evening and remember that every single atom in your body was forged in the center of one of them and you can rekindle that awe and reverence in your life for just the sheer scale beauty and magic that is the universe and keep that in your heart as you go through all these huge challenging times, then you will be super boosted and empowered in ways that you cannot imagine. What a way to end it. it. And what a beautiful, you know, those wonderful photographs coming back from the James Webb um, um, telescope. Telescope. Couldn't think of the word telescope um, yesterday. That was a, that was just such a, a, a grounding leveling moment wasn't it to see those um and just to remind us of of what we're all connected to thank you rob it's been wonderful speaking to you (laughs) 